we're lacking wisdom. And I don't think God wants it that way. And I think he would love for us to know what it means to be wise people. Let's pray. Father, it is our desire as we come before you to recognize how incredibly brilliant you are and yet so wise. You had this incredibly brilliant plan to send your son Jesus. And it was so wise because of what it did for our lives. And God, we just want to stand here before you and ask that you would send even now your Holy Spirit, who is full of wisdom. And that you would speak through me and that, God, you would allow our hearts to be open and that we might learn through this series how to be people who are wise. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a little story I read that had a real big impact on me. The author is unknown. Person writes, I sat down one day and did a little arithmetic. The average person lives about 75 years. I know some live more and some live less, but on average, folks live about 75 years. Now then, I multiplied 75 times 52, and I came up with 3,900, which is the number of Saturdays that the average person has in their entire lifetime if they live to about 75 years. It took me until I was 55 years old to think about all this in any detail, which is particularly important because I read this story not too long ago, and I not too long ago turned 55. So as he says, it took me until I was 55 years old to think about all this in any detail, and by that time I have lived through over 2,800 Saturdays of those 3,900. I got to thinking that if I lived to be 75, I only had about a thousand of them left to enjoy. So I went to a toy store and bought every single Marvel they had. I ended up having to visit three toy stores to round up over a thousand Marvels. I took them home and put them inside of a large, clear plastic container right here in my workshop next to the radio. And every Saturday since, I have taken one Marvel out and thrown it away. I found that by watching the marbles diminish, I focused more on the really important things in life. There's nothing like watching your time here on this earth run out to help you get your priorities straight. Now let me tell you one last thing before I sign off with you and take my lovely wife out for breakfast. This morning, I took the very last marble out of the container. I figure if I make it until next Saturday, then I have been given a little extra time. And the one thing we can learn and we can all use is a little more time. I thought about that, and then I thought about a very wise person. Really, I think the only psalm that is written by him, it's kind of funny that he's in the psalms at all. It's Psalm 90, written by... Moses, in fact, it says a prayer of Moses, the man of God. And he actually wrote this psalm as he watched all his contemporaries and peers who were dying around him. They were in about the 39th year, and after 40 years, the whole generation would pass away. And all that was left was Joshua and Caleb and Moses. And as he watched all his friends pass away, he wrote this prayer, and in this prayer, verse 12, he kind of lines up with this unknown author, and he says, Teach us, 
God, teach us, Lord, to number our days aright, that we may gain a heart of wisdom. That's really what my prayer is, that as we go through these messages, we will understand wisdom and actually apply it. Wisdom defined is is pretty simple. It's knowledge of what is true and right, coupled with the ability to apply that knowledge justly and well. So it's knowledge with the ability to apply it. Simply, it is knowing what to do, knowing how to do it, and knowing when to do it. Not a difficult definition. Wisdom is all about how we live. It's about understanding our time and our priorities and letting those things guide us. And so as we look at the weeks to come, we're going to be looking at wisdom, not just in the sense of time, which helps us manage that, but more in this sense of like what we do to and for our bodies, what we consume, what we eat. There's wisdom that God wants us to have around that, how we care for our physical health, how our bodies are to be fit and flexible and, and to understand that they are the temple of God. And what does that mean? And how do you wisely live with this body that you've been given? Or what about relationships? Another thing we'll be looking at is relationships. How do you parent? How are you as a grandparent? What does that look like? We're going to be looking at leading and managing. Many of us are in positions, whether it be at work or whether it be in your family or whether it be in a sports team or whether it be a teacher in a school. There's all kinds of places where you are called upon to lead and manage. How do you do that? What does wisdom look like in that situation? We're going to look at our emotions. What do you do with anger? One of those, you know, one of the most difficult things for a lot of people to deal with is that anger that erupts into kind of a volcanic temper or that sense of anger that kind of breeds this low level of frustration that just incurs all kinds of difficulties in your life. Or what do you do with your tongue? What about your, what's your conversation like? What about your words and what you say? These are just a few things that I hope as we go through these next number of weeks and the next couple of months that we're going to look at. And I titled it Streetwise for a reason. And because Proverbs at one point says it calls out in the streets. And we're going to look at that. And, and, and you'll see how we're called to be streetwise people. In the coming weeks, we're going to be looking primarily at Proverbs. But there, there is a section of literature in the Old Testament called wisdom literature. And so we may dip into there from time to time. Wisdom literature is made up of a a couple books that are in the center of your Old Testament. And and they're the books of Job, Psalms, Proverbs. It's the book of um, Ecclesiastes and the book of Song of Songs or Song of Solomon. And the key principle of wisdom literature is to offer insight and wisdom about the nature of reality. It's to, in a sense, say, here is God, here's how he's created things, and if you want to live well, these will be important truths that you should know. If you really want to live the good life, you're going to want to pay attention to this wisdom. And so this morning, I really want us just to focus in on this topic of wisdom. The idea of where do you find it, who are the kind of people it seems to kind of, you know, be a part of their life and and, and make a difference in their life. And so what I want us to do is just look at three things this morning. Where wisdom is found. Wisdom is found in God. And we're going to look at this truth. Wisdom is found all around you. And wisdom is found by those who want it and do it. Pretty simple. That's kind of the game plan. That's what we're going to look at. Wisdom is found in God. 
In fact, the very first thing is you get into the book of Proverbs, one of the very first Proverbs. It talks about all these Proverbs are written for the fact that you can be wise. And the very first thing it says foundationally before you get to any of the other Proverbs, because all the other truths and all the other sayings of the wisdom are built on this foundation. And if you get this one right, you can begin to build a house, a life of wisdom. And as you begin to build this life and this house of wisdom, or if you want to call it your character of wisdom, from that character, we're told blessings will begin to flow. So whenever you find this, you'll see in verse 7, this foundational truth, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. Now what I find is interesting is this verse is like a thread that goes all the way through Proverbs and actually is found in all the wisdom literature. And I'll just kind of give you a run-through. We're going to kind of take a run-through Proverbs and see where this is listed. Verse 7 of chapter 2. Because if you do this, 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 and then it says, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find knowledge of God. Proverbs chapter 3, verses 7 and 8. Do not be wise in your own eyes, but fear the Lord and shun evil. Proverbs 9, 10, and 11. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and knowledge of the Holy One is the understanding For through wisdom your days will be many, and your years will be added to your life. Proverbs 10.27, the fear of the Lord adds length to life, but the years of the wicked are cut short. Proverbs 14.27, the fear of the Lord is a fountain of life, turning a person from the snares of death. You kind of get the picture? Proverbs 15.33, it's getting a little redundant, isn't it? There's something that God wants us to know. There's something the writers want us to know. Proverbs 15:33. Wisdom's instruction is to fear the Lord, and humility comes before honor. Proverbs 19:23. The fear of the Lord leads to life. Then one rests content, untouched by trouble. Proverbs 22:4. Humility is the fear of the Lord. The wages are riches and honor and life. Proverbs 23:17 and 18. Do not let your heart envy sinners, but always be zealous for the fear of the Lord. This is surely a future hope for you, and your hope will not be cut off. Now, I find it interesting, if you go through the other wisdom books, you'll find that this is the foundation of each and every one of them as well. If you go through Psalms, you'll find there, I could have read to you 50-some verses from Psalms alone that talk about the fear of the Lord being wisdom. You go to Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes is this book about King Solomon who is on the search for the meaning of life, wants to know wisdom, wants to know what it means to really live life. And after a thorough search, here's his conclusion, the final words in the final chapter of this book of Ecclesiastes. Now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter, says Solomon. Fear God and keep his commands. For this is the whole duty of man. Although the Song of Solomon doesn't actually say the words fear the Lord, the whole book is built on this intimate relationship of a a man and a woman, which is to parallel the kind of relationship that God the Father wants to have with his people, the church. And there's this, this thought that runs through it that only in the depths of this intimate experience with God is there wisdom, fulfillment, and joy. And then you look at the book of Job. You know, we all know Job, all kinds of suffering, all kinds of hardship. But after he goes through and he listens to some of these counselors who don't give him the best advice, at a certain point, Job asks himself this question. Where can wisdom be found? 
Where does understanding dwell? Man cannot comprehend its worth. It cannot be found in the land of the living. Not in the deep, nor in the sea, does he say. It can't be bought, even with gold. And then he asks again, where then does wisdom come from? And then Job continues, God, he alone knows where it dwells. He said to man, catch this, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. To shun evil is understanding. So as you run through this and you see this redundant truth over and over again, if you want to know where wisdom is found, it's found in God, but particularly it's found in something with regard to how you relate to God. And the word he uses here is fear. In some way, the fear of the Lord is the beginning. It's the doorway. It is the first steps, so to speak. And he also kind of makes it very clear that if this fear of God takes place in your life, blessings flow from it, and you cannot and don't even have to be afraid about anything else. This fear of God displaces every other fear in your life. Jesus said it this way in Luke chapter 12, verses 4 through 7. He says, I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that can do no more. Here's, the, you know, what, what we can all be afraid of. Go down a dark alley, you know, that whole, you know, the, the loss of our life, death. And he says, don't be afraid of someone who can actually murder you or kill you or take your life. That's not the thing to be afraid of. Let this fear displace that. He says, I will show you, says Jesus, whom you should fear. Fear him who after the killing of the body has the power to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. And you go, whoa, what's this stuff about being, is this about, you know, we're supposed to be afraid of God. And then Jesus, this is within the same breath, Jesus continues. And you know what he says? Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? Yet not one of them is forgotten by God. Indeed, the very hairs on your head are all numbered. Don't be afraid, implied, of God. For you are worth more than many sparrows. This incredibly great God, this incredibly powerful, wise, brilliant, almighty God, holy and righteous, in which people stand and tremble, loves you deeply. Jesus says, relax. Because if you get this right, not being afraid of anyone else, but, but placing him as your ultimate concern, fearing him alone, everything else should fall in line. So to fear God is asking the question, how do you relate to God? To begin to, to step into wisdom, to move through the doorway where you begin to become wise, is all about specifically your posture and stance before God. It's all about how you relate to God. And do you relate this way? Some of you who have a lot more Saturdays in your jar, what Ecclesiastes says, what is said according to King Solomon is, when you're young, if you get this attitude right, if you get this posture right before God, you're going to find blessing in your life. You're going to find that your character will grow. And because of that character, you will find God showing up in ways that you couldn't imagine. So what does that character look like? How does that person begin to have that posture? I love the way Proverbs 1, 7 says it in in the message. Eugene Peterson paraphrases, he says, start with God. 
So you want to know wisdom? Start with God. And then he says the first step in learning, or I would say the first step in wisdom, is bowing down to God. And then he makes a comparison. Only fools thumb their nose at such kind of wisdom and learning. So what does that look like? Well, as I thought about it, I thought, here's the best way for me to explain it. When I was about 12 years of age, my family went to visit my dad's brother. My uncle and aunt lived in Buffalo, New York. And we went to Buffalo, New York. And one of the things we did when we were there is we visited this huge place where all kinds of romantic stuff happens. All kinds of water where it falls over an edge. You know, you know what I'm talking about? Niagara Falls. So there I am as a kid coming up to this rushing flowing this this expanse of water and it was definite and we actually went at one point underneath and you could actually stand like with the falls rushing before you so full and I'm a little 12 year old with this yellow raincoat on I'm standing at the edge and I got all these people around me and I'm afraid that if they push me any further I'm going to go over the edge of that I had this incredible sense of awe This is big. This could do me damage. This is of such wonder. Well, some of you might not relate to that. So one of the other things I had an experience in my life, I've never had the opportunity. How many have gone to the Grand Canyon? Okay. I haven't had that opportunity, but I did go to, and we'll show you some pictures of the Grand Canyon to kind of just awaken those memories in your own life. But I had the opportunity to go to Banff, Canada, and I was able to go to the Canadian Rockies. So for all you Canadians, that's a pretty impressive place. I see a few hands there. Okay. And I remember standing there at the edge, and I took a bunch of uh, of students. I was uh, at that point about 20, maybe 30, I think, and these young students, they had no fear they were like up to the edge. I remember standing there going, if I just hit a pebble wrong, I'm a goner. And when I stood at the edge of it, I had this same kind of experience as in Niagara Falls. It was like, whoa. Unbelievable. This is so big, so incredible, so majestic. I am so small. I am so humble. I am. It was this sense that God calls people to. He says, if you want wisdom, it's the same thing as you stand in the presence of God. You live with God daily in your life. You have this sense where you go. Your heart goes, whoa. There's a God. And I see myself in relationship to him. There's a God who is not just powerful. There's a God who is not just majestic and holy and righteous. There is this God who is brilliant and wise beyond anything I could ever, ever, ever understand. And it's this attitude that goes as you kind of bend your knee and bow and say, God, I want to live moment by moment with this recognition of this holy, reverent fear and awe of how incredibly wise and brilliant you are. And I'm going to ask that you would begin to inform my life. And the way he does is that he invites you like he did through communion. He says, you know what? You, you need to get real with what's going on in your life. You understand of your own need. You understand that your sin has offended me. It's, a, it's just offended others. And if you're willing to open your life and to walk with me day in and day out and understand the sense of humility and begin to bow and begin to say, God, I want to be in relationship with you. I want to walk with you. I want to know you. I'm going to go, whoa. 
every moment and day of my life. You're at the door. You've taken the first steps. I don't want just a few of us doing this. I want a whole church of people who say, I'm going to live this way. We're not going to be just the most joyful church. We're going to be the wisest church. If we choose to live that way as a group, if you choose to live that way individually, to choose to live that way so you can have that kind of marriage or you can have that kind of relationship with someone who's dear to you. You can choose to have that kind of relationship with kids that you have or, or with parents or wherever you work. I mean, wherever it applies. But you know what else is really kind of interesting is that wisdom is not just a sense of it's found in God and how you relate to him, this sense of, of awe. It's also found all around you. You know, I love this about God. Here's the truth of God. If you want to know how to live both in faith and practice, there is in a very simple way that God's word is divinely inspired. There is truth in this for you. But here's something else that wisdom tells us. It isn't just in his word. You can find wisdom all around you. God is not stingy in giving his wisdom to you. In fact, if you, you read verse 20, this is where I got the, the, the series title, Wisdom Calls Aloud in the Street. She raises her voice in the public squares. At the head of the noisy streets, she cries out. In the gateways of the city, she makes her speech. You think of the life of Jesus. Jesus, when he would teach, would often point that out. He'd kind of go, just look around you guys. Would you look at the birds and, and look how they live their life? And they're not anxious because they know they have a father who cares for them. And then he'll point to some flowers and he'll say, do you see them spinning and toiling? No, because God provides their clothes. Just live that way with God. He'll look at a, he'll look out at a, a field and he'll see a farmer throwing seeds. And he says, you know what? Here's wisdom in it. You look how that farmer throws seeds. You see some seed falls on good ground, some on bad. But if your heart is like good ground... There's wisdom in this. If you look at the fact of how a farmer sows, you find that when a farmer sows, what you sow, you reap. If you're putting in corn, you're not going to get beans. There's wisdom in it. What you sow, you're going to get back. Did you see how God is so brilliant and yet so wise informs everything around us? I remember a certain time in my life where it became really clear to me. I was in a, a situation where I was um, actually experiencing, you know how you sometimes, you know, it's like Groundhog Day, you feel this, you're doing the same thing over and over again? And it was within a relationship, and, and, and for a, a good period of my life, I, um, and it's really easy to fall into this, it's kind of it's always like, well, it's their fault. If they, would just do, if they would just get their act together. Anybody live that way at times? You know, if my boss would just get, you know, Whatever. But I found something really interesting. The Holy Spirit kind of began to grab me because out of this sense of woe and I'm walking with him, he kind of said, Kevin, there's some wisdom in here. You've got some head knowledge. You're not really applying it because you're not seeing the wisdom in what's going on here. Forget about that person. Start looking at your own heart. Take responsibility and say to me, God, what is it you want me to know about this? What am I supposed to change? Do you know if you live that way, you'll find wisdom all around you. It is way, way too easy for us to say, if you just had wisdom, then we'd be okay. Wisdom is all around you if you want it. So I was thinking about this. I, I, I wrote down, wisdom is shouting from a broken relationship sometimes. If you're willing to hear it for yourself. 
Sometimes wisdom is shouting within the dysfunctional family and you kind of keep going, well, that black sheep, my other kids are really the star child. But in fact, sometimes God is saying, you know what, you're throwing your shame on that person you need to deal with. There's ways that God uses the things that are right around us if we're willing to get our attention and place it on ourselves and then ask God, give me wisdom. Sometimes wisdom is shouting as you grow more deeply in debt. Sometimes wisdom is shouting as you get another headache or Sometimes wisdom is crying out when your body becomes brittle through bitterness rather than through being, moving into forgiveness. There's all kinds of ways. Sometimes your body is shouting because your aches and pains and stiff because of what you eat. So right now I just want you to do something really practical, okay? I want you to consider an everyday place. And I want you to look at maybe one, maybe it's something that is just really a lot of tension. You're feeling pain in this area. There's stuff going on. And, and, and maybe God's trying to get some wisdom to you through that place. You know, a real simple thing you can do is to say, God, in this situation, would you reveal for me, not for them or that, but for me, what do I need to do? Do I need some boundaries? Do I need to actually go and say, for, ask for forgiveness? Is there something you're teaching me? Do I need to have a softer spirit? Do I need to listen better? And God may give you something. Oh, you're sitting here right now. Some people get something like that. Sometimes you just need to kind of press into it and say, God, I want your wisdom in this. Because that leads us to the next point. Wisdom is found. It's found. It's found by those who want it. It's not kind of like, okay, God, you know, give me some wisdom. Sometimes God does. He opens your heart and he does it. But, oh, give me, oh, it didn't work. <laughs> it's found by those who want it. And then the second thing, and then do it. When the wisdom comes, they actually do it. It's not for the lazy. Everybody wants to be, in some sense, successful and well-connected and, and have intimacy. And you know what? We find in life. It takes wisdom, and wisdom are for those who want it. Look at Proverbs chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. Wisdom is speaking here. My son, if you accept my words and store up my commands within you, turning your ear to wisdom and applying your heart to understanding, indeed, if you call out for insight and cry aloud for understanding, if you look for it as for silver, and if you will search for it as for a hidden treasure. Anybody ever lost your uh, wallet or your smartphone? You ever have a sense of panic? You ever feel any sense of panic with regard to needing wisdom? Really wanting it? Saying, you know what, I'm going to pursue this and I'm going to take responsibility for my life. I'm going to see what's going on around me until, God, you do something in me that changes me so that my character begins to change, so that as my character changes, so do the things around me. It's not just a healthy attitude that goes, whoa. And, and one that goes, oh, God, help me see the wisdom and things right around me, right where I live, right in the streets that I walk on, where you're calling out. But it's also for those who really are willing to pursue it. And we pursue all kinds of things. You think about it. People avidly pursue certain hobbies. There are people who actually go out in the cold right now and sit on a lake, drill a hole, put a line with a worm down there. That's nuts. But I'll be out there this afternoon. I'm just kidding. Um, I mean, you'll avidly pursue exercise or reading or your investments. There's people who will be looking at the stock. They'll be looking at that. They're going to be tracking their investments. 
And I want to tell you, the greatest investment you're going to make is not the one that provides for you when you're 65 and you hope till you're 85 because you may not make it. Is this investment of saying, God, I want to walk with you. I want to know you. I'm going to begin to look for you all around in my life. I'm going to take responsibility and grow. And I'm going to pursue you with everything that I have. Audubon, who is, um, you know, the Audubon Society, this great naturalist. I remember reading once um, he was willing to undergo prolonged discomfort to pursue and learn more about the world of birds. Okay. Any bird watchers here? Like really birds? I mean, I have a patio and I look at them, I like them. Anyway, um, as an ornithologist, Audubon counted his physical discomfort as nothing compared to the success of his work. He would rise at midnight, night after night, and go out into the swamps to study the habitats of certain nighthawks. And he would crouch motionless for hours in the dark and fog and feeling himself well rewarded if after weeks of waiting he secured just one single fact about a certain species of a bird. During one summer, he went day after day to the bayous near New Orleans to observe a shy waterfall. He would stand almost to his neck in nearly stagnant water, scarcely breathing, like countless poisonous moccasin snakes swam by his face, and while great al- these great big alligators passed and repassed his silent watch. You know what that is? That's dumb. <laughs> I don't know if that's wise. But he said as his face glowed with enthusiasm, this is what he said, it was not pleasant, but what of that? I have the picture of the bird. Incredible. He would do that for a picture of a bird. And I just had to ask myself, how eager do I pursue God? How much will I sacrifice so that I can know this God who has wisdom for my situation and circumstance right now? How much do I want this God in my life? What displeasure, discomfort will I put up with because of what it will do, not just for me, but for my kids who I say I love and my wife who I say I love? What will it do for me, for the people I work with within this church? What will it do if I will just say, God, like Autobahn, I'm going to pursue because it's the most important thing in life. It opens the doors to God's blessing in every area of your life. Not necessarily right away. But as you do it again and again and character develops, there will be a payoff. And wisdom is not just for those who pursue it. It's those who pursue it in order to do it. That's the key to all this right here. You can have and say you have this sense of, oh, whoa, I come to church, I worship God. And even say you're looking for it and even pursue it. But there's a step of obedience that Jesus said, if you love me, you'll obey my commands and remain in my love, just like my father, so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. It's about doing it. It's pursuing it in order to do it so that after a period of time you do it again and again, guess what? You begin to experience delight. You kind of go, wow, doing the stuff God tells me to do is really good. It changes my life. It changes our marriage. It changes my relationship with the significant person in my life. It changes the way that I relate to my family and the way I'm at work. 
And I think it's interesting, Jesus had this to say about this. He, he at one point got done with this whole message. He had given all kinds of brilliant understanding in the Sermon on the Mount. And he gets done. You know one of the last things he says after he gets to the end of the Sermon on the Mount? He gives a story about wise and foolish builders. And this is what he concludes. He says, let me tell you about wise and foolish builders. Therefore, everyone who hears the words of mine and then catches and puts them into practice. Is like the wise man who builds his house on the rock. Because Jesus, like every good leader, every good parent, every good person who is in any kind of situation where you're giving wisdom to someone knows that it's not head knowledge that makes a difference. You can go to adult class, you can read in Bible study, you can be involved in all these things. But if you're not actually taking it and choosing joy and moving into the things that God calls you to do, if you're not moving into these things when you know it's right and you do it's right, you won't experience wisdom. You won't experience what it means to grow in your faith in God. Because it is in the doing that you receive the blessing. I remember at a certain point in my daughter's life, Kenzie, who is my youngest, um, some of you have kids and it's kind of like this. My, my oldest would pay attention and I'd read books and she'd be right with me and my other daughter, two years younger, is one on her own going around here. So I'm thinking to myself, okay, I got I to gotta do something with her. So I thought, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have her memorize some scripture. So I thought, I'm going to have her memorize Psalm 112. It's a cool psalm. In the psalm, I, I took all the male references and I made them female for her. And so it goes something like this. Praise the Lord. Blessed is the woman who fears the Lord, who finds great delight in his commands. And I, I started memorizing, making it personal so that she would have it. And, and, you know, she was actually doing it with me. And we continued to read because I thought, what a great thing. If I can get this into the structure of her being, maybe this will begin to start playing out at some point in her life. Her children will be mighty in the land. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Wealth and riches are in her house. And her righteousness endures forever. Even in darkness, light dawns for the upright. For the gracious and compassionate and righteous woman, good will come to her who is generous and lends freely, who conducts her affairs with justice. Surely she will never be shaken. A righteous woman will be remembered forever. She will have no fear of bad news. Her heart is steadfast, trusting in the Lord. Her heart is secure. She will have no fear. And in the end, she will look and triumph on her foes. And it goes on. And I thought, what a cool thing. But one of the things that stood out for me, and I always was trying to understand, what does it mean, this whole sense of delight in the Lord? There is this idea that if you fear the Lord, have this sense of, whoa, at a certain point, you're going to go, I want to do what God says. If he even tells me to do something hard, I'm going to do it. If it's going to cost me something, I'm going to do it. If I give my word to something, I'm going to follow through it. Because that's all about living this life of character. And so I heard a story the other day, not too long ago, that for the first time just gave me great clarity on what delight is all about. So let me share it with you. Um, because what you need to understand, just a backdrop to this whole thing, is this whole idea is if you really understand who God is, and, and you understand how much greater and awesome He is than you could ever imagine, you will have this sense of woe and holding Him in highest regard. And you will begin to take great delight in anything he calls you to do. Crassly, let me put it this way. You will come to believe that God is smarter than you are in every way. And you will learn over time that his ways are better than your best plans. And then you will want to joyfully carry out his plan because you have learned through experience that his plan is better and smarter and far wiser than yours. So Bill Hybels, pastor of Willow Creek uh, Church in Chicago, tells this story. He says he started sailing 
um, to lower his cholesterol. And then he goes, no, not really. It was really to lower my Christian counseling bills. And I love his honesty. He says he, he bought a used beat up sailboat and put some um, guys together in South Haven, Michigan, where he grew up. And they started racing. They actually, he said, did quite well in a local area. But after their first few attempts, when they tried some national level races, they didn't do well at all. Because the people they were up against were much better than they were. So Hybels was giving a talk in San Francisco one day. And after the talk, a man came up to him and and Bill recognized him immediately because he was in all the magazines, the sailing magazines of that day. He was actually America Cup, the the tactician for America's Cup. And, And this guy comes up to him. His name's John Bertrand. And after um, they talked, as he had been affected by Bill's talk, after they had talked for a little bit at the end of their interaction, Bertrand says to Bill Hybels, he goes, you know what, hey, if, you can, if I can do anything for you, here's my card, just give me a call sometime. So Bill took his card, didn't think much of it, until he um, and his guys on a sailing team were planning for a, this national caliber regatta. And he thought, you know, I'm going to give John Bertrand a call. He goes, I'll call him, he won't, he won't answer, but I'll give him a call anyway. So he gives John Bertrand a call, and he tells him about this national regatta, and he asks John Bertrand, would you be willing to be the tactician on our team? And Bertrand goes, you know, it so happens that I have those dates available. Yeah, I'll, I'll come and do that. And he figures out the time, gets it and everything. Bill tells his crew, his crew goes, I can't, they just can't believe it. There's no way John Bertrand's going to come. He's going to be a tactician on our boat. Yeah, right. Now, you've got to understand something. John Bertrand, in that day as a tactician, was... It was a lot like like having a Michael Jordan on your church basketball team. Okay? They come to this national regatta. He comes. He parks his car. Bill and his crew are working their boat with all the other boats around them. Bertrand parks his car, walks down the dock. As he walks down the dock, all the people from the other boats just stop and they look. Because they all know who he is. And they're going... And he says, Bill walks onto his boat. His crew still can't believe that John Bertrand's on their boat. And so, as he gets on the boat, they knew as a team that at his level of sailing knowledge, which was so vastly superior to theirs, his experience being a hundred times more than theirs, they knew that he was in a completely different class than they were, that when he would say something, they would do it. And so he says, Bill says, we did everything he told us. We did it joyfully. We did it expecting it would work out rather well. We did it with great delight. And Bill says, to make a long story short, they took six first places in that regatta. They won the entire event, something they'd never done before and haven't done since. He says that after the regatta, they stood up as a crew, and as John Bertrand had to leave to get a plane, they all shook his hand, and Bill said, I shook his hand, and I haven't washed it since. (laughs) So let me ask you, you're sailing, John Bertrand's on your boat, and he tells you to do a certain thing with the sail. Do you do it? With the light. So you're living life. You've invited because you've come to a place of awe, a whoa, this God is incredible. And any place in my life where this great life tactician shows up and points out something to me, I'm going to pursue it. And when I have the opportunity, I am going to do it with delight. 
Because he's just so much smarter and brighter and wiser than you could ever be. And so the people who find wisdom are the ones who find it in God and they find it specifically in the way they relate to him. And they begin to find it because they don't just have to have a book, although the book tells us so much. They live life and in life itself they can see and they can hear as they interact with it this Holy Spirit who takes his word at times and applies it to a situation. And they're the kind of people that say, I'm going to live to know you and pursue you. And I am going to delight in everything you call me to do. And I pray as we go through this series, there will be opportunities that God will kind of step in and he'll be able to say to you, guess what? Here's an area I want you to act in delight. Now, we're going to close in in, in just a minute, but I want to share with you over this series, we're going to try and do four things. And we're going to do this again and again. And this words, what I call in order for wisdom to be applied to your life, you need to one determine. Which means have a plan. It means you're going to have to then decide you're going to actually choose to do it. And then you're going to have to discipline yourself to do it. And everyone hates the word discipline, but you know what the word discipline means? It means decide to do it again and again and again and again and again, whether you feel like it or not. And the last thing will happen in your life is you will have delight. And I want you to pay attention to where God might be saying, I want you to determine to do this. I want you to decide to do it. I want you to discipline yourself to do it. And I want you to learn delight. For some of you, it may be that coming to church is something you need to start saying, I'm going to discipline, I'm going to do it again and again because I need to be in the presence of God. Or I need to be in a group of a small group of people where I begin to get to know God through people. It may be joy, what we've been looking at. I could go on and on, but I'm going to ask you to not take a whole lot of things and try and do too many things. Ask the Holy Spirit what is what is called kind of the keystone habit that can bring a change in your life. Because God is brilliant. And he wants you to be as well. But he wants you even more than that to be wise.